Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio B.A. Shapiro. B.A., welcome to the Living thanks. Writers and CBN. Um, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Coming on down. You're on book tour right now. I am. Actually, a, a massive book tour. This is one of the, it's almost unheard of in today's day and age, the book tour that you're on right now. It's especially unheard of if you're not John Grisham or uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh, but I have a fabulous publisher, Algonquin Books, and, and a they shout out back we, up that they back up their writers. And a shout out to Michael McKenzie now yes. uh, for getting in touch and and sending us the books so we can. He's have my this. wonderful publicist. <laughs> he's pretty great. Yeah, he's very cool. He's a cool guy. He's fun. And he's, Algonquin is is great. Out of and of Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill. Uh, they have offices in New York too but they uh publish like large publishers publish hundreds of books a month and they publish 20 new titles a year so they're able to get behind their books and so they have a very different mo than the large publishers and i love it and that actually came in really handy for your sixth novel the art forger because it was sort of beyond um people were saying oh we can't categorize it when you were sending it out right or when your agent was was it finding got rejected it um by every major publisher in new york because they said it didn't fit into a genre and if it didn't fit into a genre they didn't know how to sell it to booksellers and what it really meant was that because they weren't going to promote it, they didn't have a box to put it in to say, okay, this is a mystery, this is historical. Um, so it was a combination of mystery, history, there's some romance in there, there's a bunch of art in there. And it took <laughs> a bunch of art. That's why it's called the art forger. Uh, and so it took a small publisher who is nimble enough to be able to promote it in a way that then worked really well. Yes, and it became on the New York Times yep. bestseller yep. list, an indie pick, number one selection. It was, you know, the book that nobody could pub nobody was willing to publish and take a risk, and then uh, it hit it big, and uh, <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> I bet because you have to kind of withstand quite a bit, don't you, when you're putting sending the book out? It's terrible, and and then. And you keep believing in it. And it sounds like you have a good agent, too. I have a really good agent who didn't get discouraged, which many agents do. And she just kept sending it out, even when I was getting completely discouraged and started talking about another career and all kinds of stuff. And she's like, no, we're going to keep at this. Somebody is going to publish this book. So now she's my agent forever. Her name is Ann Collette at the Reese Agency in Boston. Give her a shout out. Yes. Hello, Ann. And um, and how did how did you guys find Algonquin then? It was oh. Ann because we had gone to all the big guys. They turned us all down. And we were talking, and I said, well, you know, I guess we should send it to every publisher we can imagine. And she knew my editor, Amy Gash, at Algonquin and sent it to her. And Amy really loved it, and they were willing to get behind her and get behind it and get behind me. And uh, my life has changed. 
<laughs> and that was your sixth novel, yes. The Art Forger. Well, it's actually, um, if you count the novels I've written, it was my 10th novel. It was my sixth published novel, but the first five novels nobody ever read. And are those, like, are they in sort of the um, that the, the, the magical drawer, the desk drawer? Um, there, BA, uh, yes, or? I have four in that magical desk drawer, <laughs> but I don't think any of them are going to see the light of day. Um there, one of them is really, really good, and I would be proud to publish it. But there are things about it that have to do with time and place that may, was when I wrote it, it was in the near future. Mm. So now the oh, future's the past, and it's just not really going to work. So I'm moving forward. Does it take like some like sort of writing some of those books? Because you mentioned um, career paths, and you you came to writing. You you're sort of. I'll tell you what. Do you mind if I read your short bio from the back of the book that we're going to be talking about today, The Muralist? And then maybe we'll kind of flash back in time a little bit to talk about some of your origin story. Does that sound good, (laughs) B.A.? sounds good. Okay. So today on the table, we have B.A. Shapiro's latest novel, The Muralist. B.A. Shapiro Shapiro is the author of the award-winning New York Times bestseller, The Art Forger. She has taught sociology at Tufts University and creative writing at Northeastern University. She lives in Boston with her husband, Dan, and their dog, Sagan. Okay, so that was the brief version. Now we're going (laughs) to... (laughs) <laughs> Add some more pieces into it. So, so you had had a couple. You you were you have a so, sociology a PhD in sociology. That's right? true. And because then, all novelists need a PhD in sociology, it's a prereq. Oh, is it? Is yes. It? Now, how is it? How has it served you as a writer? <laughs> it's actually served me in very odd ways. Um, it's it's helped me. I I know how to do research. Because when you have academic degrees, you know how to do research. But when you're working on an academic piece, as you know, you have to go to every last person who has even breathed on your subject and the citations and the bibliography and all of that kind of stuff. But when you do research to write a novel, you just go until you're not interested anymore. And then you make the rest of it up. That's <laughs> I wish you guys could see B.A.'s face right now. It's absolutely shining. And that's the fun part. Yeah, and that's the part that the, yeah, you're, fun part. you're loving. Or when it, you feel sort of that, um, the, the fission or like the different, like it's the sparks flying, really. Yeah. But that doesn't happen nearly as much as people like to think it does. Um, most of the time you're sitting in front of that computer going, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? This isn't working, you know, and printing it out and ripping it up and deleting and deleting and deleting. And then a spark comes and you're addicted again. Yeah. And so it's the day you're saying it is like coming to it the day today. It is. Being there. Yep. Getting that's when people ask me, what advice would you give writers? It's always get your butt in the chair and stay there. (laughs) That's the advice. So and hopefully find an ergonomically friendly chair. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like our our fine specimens here in Prade. <laughs> it's always it's always it's always fun. We ha- we have a sight gag chair here, everyone, where it sort of drops when someone sits in it. Um, better to warn them, I suppose. But so so, B, you were saying that um, you you've written. T- 10 novels if we're to end and several most of them have been published now but um so 
what changed for you? When did you decide that um, you wanted to give fiction a, a try, novel writing? Well, I actually... Originally, I was working as a sociologist, and I ran uh, research projects um, on substance abuse, and then I started working as a systems analyst and statistician, and then I ran the Boston office of a software development company, and then I had two kids, and I was traveling all the time and working 80 hours a week, and I wasn't happy, and uh, so I was having lunch with my mother one day and I'm like mom I don't know what to do and I need to be superwoman if I'm not superwoman I don't know who I am and she said if you knew you had one year to live what would you do and I said I would write a novel and I would spend more time with my children so that's when I started writing I didn't start writing till I was 36 years old and how did you know that you wanted to write a novel? Was it had you been reading widely then, or was it something? That, I'm a total novel or, addict. Or when you were a kid, were you also writing? I'll, always and... Uh, writing and reading, even more reading than writing. Um, I always have been and and novels. I don't read that much nonfiction. I don't read that. You know, like everybody says, well, did you see this article in the New Yorker? Well, I'd love to read it, but I'm too busy reading my novels. <laughs> I don't have time to read the New Yorker. And what is it about the novels? Like, what is it? The novel story, 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 story. Um, human beings love stories. I mean, you watch a little kid being read a book. They, you know, we, we love them. And I, you know, I, I've grown up with them. And um, I was telling this story today when I was about 11, 10 or 11, I read Gone with the Wind. I didn't know it was politically incorrect when I when I read it. It actually wasn't politically incorrect then because nobody knew that. But anyway, I read it, uh, finished it. Then I started on page one and went all the way to the end. And I said, I want to be a novelist. I want to be able to tell stories. This is all I want. But then I realized that you can't make a living as a novelist, which is the truth. So I became a sociologist instead because you can make such a great living being a sociologist. <laughs> but but that's also stories. And it's looking it's at the, the stories of people's stories. lives yeah. and, and our our. Our, our structures together, right? Communities, I mean, yes. <laughs> our structures together. Well, structuralism <laughs> is a theory in sociology to uh, analyze communities. So you're, you're kind of there. <laughs> oh, well, well, thanks. You're very generous, B.A. Um, so today on Living Writers, B.A. Shapiro is here. We've got her latest novel, The Muralist on the Table. B.A. Shapiro is coming through Ann Arbor. It's the 30th of November, 2015. So I should tell you guys, it's a taped show. And she was here at Nicola's and there'll probably be some book signed books um, so if you want to swing by Nicola's Bookshop in Westgate, um, you could find some everyone. For now, we're going to take a short break. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. And we've got Michelle Pernia also in the studio. Um, we'll be right back after this break. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Life is bare Gloom and misery everywhere Stormy weather just can't get my 
yourself together Welcome back. Today on Living Writers, B.A. Shapiro is here. The novel is The Muralist. Um, it's a beautiful looking book too, B.A. I know we can't beam this out um, <laughs> across the interwebs, but um, Algonquin Books is this, like it's- They're the best. They've made a, a lovely book. Um, I think it's also, it is important to talk about the, the publishing houses that are the independent publishing houses. Yep. So um, thanks. So we've sort of had a love fist for the first part of the show, so <laughs> won't keep revisiting that, but I do I do think it's, it's really Im- important. Um, so, okay, so B.A., the music, you chose all the songs for today's show. Thanks for doing that. Some be- it's hard to even have them fade fade down, you know, because they're just they're brilliant. Um, it's You chose them because they're of the time period that the muralist partially takes place because we move back and forward in Correct. time, um, 1939, 1940, and then also uh, to the present, 2015. Um, could you tell us a little bit about... So most of the book takes place uh, during the 1939-1940 period. And when I sat down to write this book, I knew I wanted to write about art. And I knew I wanted to write a book with the same elements as the art forger, so that it would have the art, it would have the history, it would have a mystery, it would have a little bit of romance. And so I had to decide what historical moment I wanted to, to write about. Why was it important? to you to stay also with the art? Like, what was it I, about that? I had that? such a great time writing The Art Forger. And then people responded to it. And people just loved learning about art. And if they knew about it, they loved learning the extra pieces of it. And I was fascinated by it. And, you know, they, they say that you should write what you know. But uh, the, uh, so the muralist is actually my 11th book and I ran out of what I know about 10 and a half ago. So I write what I want to learn about. And so I had always wanted to write about the depression. Uh, my parents had grown up during the depression. I always heard about it. And so I started doing a little research about art in the depression. And what came up was the WPA Roosevelt's program, uh, to get the country back to work under the new deal. And they actually hired artists. There was a part of the program called the FAP, the Federal Art Project, and they hired artists to paint murals and graphics and actually do sculptures and do paintings. And, and photography, and too. Photography. And photography. And what they did is they were building all of these buildings, and they put the art 
in the buildings yes. that they were building. Like post offices. Post or... offices and museums and uh, all kinds of federal buildings. And there's still a lot of these murals around, which is very exciting. Uh, and then I started doing some research into the WPA and discovered that in New York City, so the WPA was all over the place, but in New York City, there were artists who at the time were young and unknown and just, you know, kind of crazy and jumping in and out of each other's beds and getting drunk, smoking some pot. And, New York City. Yeah, New York City, 1939. <laughs> or any time. Yeah, <laughs> any time, right? <laughs> Still today, New York City. And uh, who turned out to be very famous. Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Lee Krasner, uh, Hans Hoffman was there, Willem de Kooning was there, uh, Gorky. I mean, there were just tons of these artists. And I thought, wow, I could write about the abstract expressionists. Uh, I could write about the Depression. And I can write about art and the WPA. And I can learn all about these things. And then I did some more research and found out that Eleanor Roosevelt, who is my favorite historical person ever, ever. She's like the one I would want to have dinner with, you know, living or dead, she's it. And that she was the one who was responsible for convincing Franklin to open up the WPA to artists. So it was like, okay, I'll write about her too. And I decided to keep all of these people so that they would be actual historical characters in the book. And then I would interweave my fictional characters through these characters as well as the time. So there was the Depression. It was right before World War II, so there was a lot of politics going on about whether we should get involved in the war, we shouldn't get involved in the war, whether we should let refugees in who were running from Hitler. Um, and there are striking similarities to much of this stuff today. So the, the moment in time, and there's fabulous music, from that time, which can come, a lot of it can come from the difficulties of that time. And it also is a moment that not that many people know about right before World War II, at a time when, you know, we think of World War II as the good war. But as late as 1940, something like 80% of the American people did not want to get involved in the war. And there were still, in New York City, you could walk past a restaurant and there would be a sign that said, no Negroes and no Jews. And people just accepted it. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of racism that was going on there. And so I wanted to play with all of that stuff, too. And how do, how do you then, so it sounds like, so you start researching it. How, how do you decide or how does your fictional character make her debut into your imagination? How do you, how did you meet her? How did you bring her into the story? Or to the history, yeah. <laughs> to make history. The, the novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people like, uh, there are some writers that start out with a character, or they start out with a place, or they start out with a theme. And I like to start out with the story. And I do it by starting to do research about whatever this is. So based on the research and based on what I was interested in, the character had to have certain parameters. So she had to be an artist. She had to be working for the WPA. Um, she had, Did she have to be an artist? So she had like she an had, understanding? So yes, she and because I wanted, I, um, I wanted to be an artist too when I was little, but I have no artistic talent. 
and um, writing. Well, I, artistic as in <laughs> as in drawing. My stick figures okay. don't even look like stick figures, and so that's I because they're abstract expression. <laughs> no, I'm just it. kidding. There I'm gonna go. let you. That's say. it. No. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so um, I, when you write a character, a protagonist, you get to be that character, and so I got to pretend to be an artist, and I had so much fun in the art forger doing that that I knew I wanted to write from the viewpoint of another artist. So she had to be an artist. She had to be pretty young because she was working for the WPA. She was going to come in contact with Eleanor Roosevelt, and she was going to have some kind of interaction with Eleanor and her politics, because Eleanor was very involved in trying to get refugees into this country. As a matter of fact, it's the epigraph of the book. She said that her um, greatest regret at the end of her life was that she didn't convince, actually she said force Franklin, to let in more refugees. So I knew that the character had to have all of these pieces. And so she had to have some something that connected to European refugees. She had to be Jewish and um, she had to enter she had Eleanor Roosevelt had to find her somewhere and she had to be hanging out with Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner and Mark Rothko. So Alize Benoit is the name of the character and she is working for the WPA. She's painting murals in a big, huge warehouse with her best friend, Lee Krasner. She is hanging out with Jackson Pollock and studying under Hans Hoffman and going to the jumble shop with all of these artists and having an affair with Mark Rothko. She also uh, meets Eleanor Roosevelt, who comes to the warehouse where she's working, because Eleanor is very interested in this, and Eleanor becomes her patron, and Alizé receives a letter from her family in France, and they need to get out, because the Germans have occupied France, and she enlists Eleanor Roosevelt in this, you know, Eleanor tries to help her, and they fail, so Alizé takes some other route towards trying to get her family out, which may or may not be as legal and may or not be as great, but uh, that's what she chooses to do, and then she mysteriously disappears. She's got a fortitude, doesn't yes, she? Yes, she does. She's, she, well, this is her family, and this is her only family. Her parents had died in an accident when she was young. This is the family that raised her, and she had lost family before, and she was not going to lose family again. But she made some uh, some enemies, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's enemies, Charles Lindbergh, uh, Joe Kennedy, and a man named Breckenridge Long, who is, when I read about him, he's such a bad guy. Um, and nobody knows about him. So I was like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to let everybody know about Breckenridge Long. So he was, um, he was a good friend of Franklin Roosevelt's. And Franklin Roosevelt is a very, very loyal man. And he was a friend. Yes. They had been friends for like 20 years. And he, uh, Breckenridge Long, was working um, as assistant secretary of state. And he was in charge of the visas. So Congress had already approved hundreds of thousands of visas. And all of these refugees in Europe had already been vetted. And he just had to match up the refugees with the visas. But he was a, a staunch isolationist. He did not want us to get involved in the war. And he was a rabid anti-Semite. We now know that he single-handedly kept 200,000 refugees out of this country who had visas 
and had been vetted. And now we know what happened to almost all of those 200 refugees. And I was just livid. So he is the evil villain in the book. And then I found out that he, so he stays. Franklin did not get rid of him despite Eleanor begging him. To, this is this is all true, begging him. And uh, what Breckenridge Long did is he stayed in the State Department until the end of the war. Then he retired um, to a horse farm in Maryland, collected antiques, and then when he died in the late 50s, he had never apologized, never said he did anything wrong. But everybody who reads this book is going to know yeah. that he did. Held accountable. I think Held I saw that in your author's note, too. Uh-huh. I think <laughs> we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back. Maybe hear a little bit of the muralist. If, if We'll see how it goes. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. B.A. Shapiro is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You know what Miss Gus said she was going to do to Toto? She says she now, was going to... Now, Dorothy, dear, stop imagining things. You always get yourself into a fret over nothing. Now you just help us out today and find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. Far, far away, behind the moon, beyond the rain. Writers, I'm T. Hetzel today. B.A. Shapiro is here in the studio. Her novel, The Muralist. Um, thanks again for picking the songs, B.A. My and pleasure. You were just saying that that film was actually in the movie theaters at it the was. time of the book, 1939, 1940, here. Uh, was uh, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, a great movie year and uh gone with the wind is particularly 
you know, poignant for me because that's what made me want to write. Become made me a want novelist. To be a writer. So it's, yeah. you know, reading that <laughs> book, that was it. I want to be a novelist. And here we are. Here we and are. And here we are. <laughs> and and so it's also it's interesting that we have this historical moment that it's it's clear that you've been you delve into you research and you sort of find these pieces that light fires to part of the stories and in the characters right you have like an evil villain yeah right yeah for example um and and then you also have a character that you place in the current day 2015 danielle abrams um and she is related She's to, uh, she's, she's Alize's great niece. Great niece. Okay. So she's been hearing stories her whole life about this aunt who had worked for the WPA. It was rumored that she was hanging out with Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner and Mark Rothko and that she had had a strong influence on them. But the aunt in 1940 mysteriously disappears along with almost all of her work and no one in the family or anywhere ever saw her again. And nobody knows what happened to her. But she had annoyed Charles Lindbergh and Joe Kennedy and Breckenridge Long. So, so that uh, felt sort of a bit um, ominous, yeah, I think, when yeah. I was reading yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So Danielle goes out to try to find out what happened to her aunt. So the two stories toggle back and forth, although, as I said, most of it takes place in the past. Until the end, they, they meet, and Danielle and the reader discover what happened to Alize. And, of course, Danielle discovers lots of other things about herself in the process of the book. And is this, and because I, I have not had a chance to read The Art Forger yet, is that also a technique that you used to then to have someone from the, the past, like is this moving back and forth in time something that's... Um, almost all of my books have some element of going back between the past and the present. The Art Forger was set mostly in the, the present. 90s? Like it was in mostly the 90s? in the... It was actually uh, 2012, I think. And then, but there were letters from Isabella Stewart Gardner that were written in the late 19th century. So that was that backstory. And and a lot of my books, I've had letters, I've had chronicles, I've had different things. This is the first book, The Muralist is the first book that takes place mostly in the past. As a matter of fact, when I, the first few drafts, it took place only in the past. But my editor suggested that a present day character would pick up the pace of the book. Could and, be sort of help guide the reader. Right, help guide the reader. Um, and I was reluctant to do it, but I did. And I think it, it does work better. It works so, better. So did you have almost a full working draft then? Oh, BA I had of many the, full working drafts. Of this I wrote this book for two years and then gave it to my editor. She had only seen the beginning and she wasn't all that happy with it. And it took us two more years of working together um, and adding Danny and taking away other things and changing a whole lot of stuff uh, in order to get it where it is. So you so you worked closely with Very the closely. My editor is great. She's um, not only is she smart and perceptive, but you know, she won't make me do anything. We brainstorm, she makes suggestions. If I don't take them, I don't take them. I mean, it doesn't really, you know, and we have a great working relationship. I respect her. I listen to every, you know, I hear everything mm -hmm. she says. And then, you know, I decide what to take and what not to take. And we go back and forth. And it's a gift. 
I mean, yeah, to have a good editor. Very lucky. It's very lucky. And it's you, also old fashioned in a way. It's very it old fashioned. Really happened to everyone. It also does doesn't it? happen. <laughs> it also doesn't happen to big writers because often they don't get edited. And no matter how big I get, I want to be edited because a good editor makes your book better. And they can ask you the right questions. They can ask too. you the right questions and they can tell you, no, you know, you may be interested in this, but I don't think the readers are going to be, you know, which is important. It's important. Well, because you were telling the story. Yeah. You want... The reader is, you know, interacting with your story. You're not just throwing it out into nowhere. You know, it's an interaction. It's the reader brings a lot of who they are to the story. And as a writer, you have to understand that it's not just about you. It's about the two of you. Hopefully the millions of you. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Do you, do you mind reading some of it? For no. A, a, a small section for us. I'll read a, a small section. Um, and since we were just talking about Breckenridge Long and uh, Franklin and Eleanor, I'm just going to read the, the beginning of a scene where... Eleanor, uh, she has been trying to help Alize and she's been trying to help um, the refugees, but they keep coming up against this visa problem that Breckenridge Long will not release these visas. So this is uh, Eleanor and Franklin. It wasn't often that Eleanor had the opportunity to be alone with Franklin. He was consumed with the war in Europe and the looming election, neither of which was going well. At first, seeing exhaustion written all over his face, she tried to keep the conversation light, talking about their daughter and an upcoming state dinner. But things were too dire for idle chit-chat, and she was burning with fury at Breckenridge Long. Almost every visa request is being turned down, she said, trying to keep the stridency out of her voice. Even for people with spotless credentials, I've seen the rejected applications myself. Something does seem to be wrong. What does seem to be wrong, Franklin asked. Your SS Kwanzaa passengers got their visas. They weren't my passengers. They were Jewish refugees from occupied France, and there were only 80-some-odd souls out of the tens of thousands who need our help. They were allowed into the country, he said stiffly, only because we went around your friend Breckenridge Long. Long is just doing his job, what he thinks is best for the country. Eleanor knew Franklin could be loyal beyond reason, but this was far, far beyond reason. I don't believe that and neither do you, she declared. He's anti-Semitic and, and mean-spirited to boot. Eleanor, that's... People are dying, Franklin, and we can do something to stop it. You can do something to stop it. It's not that simple and you know it. His voice was cold. She tamped down her anger, knowing it would only hurt her argument. I'm not saying it will be easy, she said, or we won't face opposition. I'm saying this is something we need to do as human beings, that if we don't, it might be the greatest regret of our lives. Franklin stared over her shoulder, clearly trying to see into a future that couldn't be seen. I know you find the situation as appalling as I do. And you know my hands are tied. The Republicans are out for blood. One false step is all they need. What do you think will happen to your refugees if Wendell Wilkie becomes president? Thank you, B.A. And that, that's, in the, that's midway that's through the That's midway book, in like the book, yeah. midway through. Thank you. And, yeah, you can't help but think about 
the times right now and what's happening with refugees and and the need for immigration and people being open. And, you know, one of the questions that uh, the muralist raises is, do we ever learn? And then the situation with the Syrian refugees happened, obviously, after I was finished with the book. And it's like, here we are again with crazy people just trying to take over the world. Um, the You can see, you know, ISIS and Hitler, there are many similarities, and they are willing to just throw people out of their homes, do horrible things to them, and they run. And then the rest of the world says, whoa, this isn't our problem. I wrote an article for Slade, and the title of it was, you know, it's about the Syrian refugees, and the title was, What Would Eleanor Do? And Eleanor would say, let more of them in. We're going to take a short break today on Living Writers, B.A. Shapiro, her novel, The Muralist. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. writers. I'm T. Hetzel. B.A. Shapiro is here in the studio. Her novel, The Muralist, which we just heard a short section from. Um, You can get copies at Nicholas Books um, and probably any of your fine independent bookshops like Literati in town and and, and all over and, and online too, right? True. The Muralist is everywhere. Um, Out with Algonquin Books. Um, so, yeah, so, B.A., we've, we've got a few more minutes together to talk. Um, so you've got some—let's uh, talk about writing process, okay. if you don't mind. I don't. So what are some of the ways that you generate material? Well, I have a kind of unusual way of working. Um, I'm sure you've heard many novelists talk about how they start writing and then suddenly the character comes and gallops away with the story and they're just happy to follow along. Um, Somehow I'm going to I'm thinking you're going to say that that's not the case. (laughs) You know, it's like so I sit at the keyboard and my fingers are ready. And I wait, and I wait, and nobody comes. <laughs> I, like, I don't know, maybe I'm just too practical. They don't come. So I had to come up with a different way of writing novels. Uh, back to that PhD thing, 
one of my areas of uh, expertise is statistics. And so I use statistical methods to write novels. I bet you didn't know that every story follows a normal curve. Every plot, every subplot, every character arc, or at least it does in the Shapiro method of novel writing. And this normal curve can be broken into four major parts, which are the major plot points of each story, and then into eight parts, and then into 16 parts, or into 32, depending on how many, how complicated the story is. And uh, so I do that with all of my plots. I use. How does that um, look visually? Visual, well, do you I, map it out? I map it out. I actually use graph paper and come up with the normal curve, and then I divide it into its quadrants, and then I write the plot points on on the curve. Um, I also use spreadsheets to keep track of all of my characters. With the muralists, this was really important because I had the real people and the fictional people to make sure that they got places, they you know that they were in the right place at the right time. Uh, I use uh, bubble maps to chart the relationships between all of the different people, which shows me that somebody might have to be introduced earlier or later or a connection needs to be made. I use uh, scattergrams to assess the tension in every, in every, in every scene. Scattergrams. Scattergrams. So it's a, again, on graph paper. And I do dots to show exactly what the tension is. And if I see there's a few scenes and it go, <laughs> it's going like this, I know I got to throw something Which exciting like For everyone, it was a flat line sort of. <laughs> was, right, right. This is radio. No one can see my hand. Right. If it's a flat line, then I know. Um, but then I use a very, very sophisticated technique that I'm thinking neither UT nor your readers or, or your listeners are going to understand. But it is multicolored file cards. And what I do is I take all those plot points on that normal curve. And so I had one story for Eleanor Roosevelt. I take her plot points and I put each one on yellow file cards. Then I have the story for Danielle in the present. And I take all of her plot points and put them on purple file cards. Uh, Alize had many, many plot points and she was on orange file cards. And then Mark Rothko had one and this one and that one. And then I put them all on the dining room table and I move them around uh, to try and figure out how the story might work. And it can take months to do this, which is really good because I don't like to cook. And this means I don't have to have dinner parties and we can't eat. And, you know, we have to have takeout at the breakfast bar every night. Um, but that's how I come up with the story. Um, and that's how, you know, when you were talking, asking before about how how the, the fictional characters fit in with the uh, historical characters, it's their stories are being molded this way around each other in this way and then um and then i make up another chart with all of these different plot points and pieces from the cards and start writing scenes and so but the card part it sounds like can take you it said a very months. long time and, and also and it, it doesn't it's not only once i do multiple multiple drafts um the muralist probably every page has been rewritten i don't know 20 25 times not an exaggeration so i go through iterations like for example when it was just historical there was no danny but there was Henri. 
And then once Danny came in, she took over Henri's role. So Henri's cards had to go out and Danny's had to come in, but they didn't fit exactly the same way. So I had to do some other things. But you are always visually like you're, you're moving visually, these, yes. these these like these artifacts, these cards exactly. that are physical parts of your work and you're moving them to and see I the think pieces. And I that where... it, it, you know, it's like a different part of your brain mm-hmm. you're using and, and it really helps me. Um, I'm very visual and it really, it really helps me. There is software that can do this. And I, I, I bought it and I tried to, but it's not the same. I actually like the seeing the different colors and physically picking up the cards and moving this one here and moving that one there. And then when it gets more complicated, I actually put little different colored tags on the cards too. To, like where yeah. they may have been in the past or you know, so? And or like also their neighboring break colors? It. Yeah, there's okay. just, yeah. It's, you wow. probably don't even want to know. <laughs> well, but it did, works. How did this system grow? Because is that something that was present for your first run no. through a novel as you you just, it, it, it's, it grew it's, and it, built? It grew and grew. Um, when I first started, I spent way, way too much time doing research before I started writing. Um, is that I, why some of your advice online is don't, let the research become your yes. procrastination. Yeah, because research is a great procrastination. Hey, I can't write anything about Eleanor Roosevelt until I read three more books about her. No, those that's are, not true. <laughs> those are generally hefty books. Too. Yeah, and they're hefty the books. books. And, but, you know, and they're interesting, or like particularly with Eleanor Roosevelt. So this book only takes place in 1939 and 1940. Right. And I'm reading about her and I'm fascinated. And suddenly I'm in 1945. And I'm like, no, Barbara, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know? You have to just stick with what what is important for the book. Otherwise, you're you're years into it and you throw most of it out. You know, it's uh, you do even when I stop, when I'm not interested, I still have way, way more than I'm ever going to use because a novel is a story. It's not historical fiction is is fiction. It's not it's not history. You're not writing a history book. It's not it's it's a story. And the research can bog down the story. And I don't want to do anything to bog down the story. So I you know, different historical novelists have different ways of doing this. Some stick only to the facts. Some don't care at all. I'm kind of in the middle. But if a fact needs to be changed a little bit because the story demands it, I'll do it. And I have a note at the end of the book that says what's true and what isn't true. But everything about Breckenridge Long, every evil thing he did is true. Yeah, you didn't even have to exaggerate for nope. that. Oh, no. Not necessary. Not necessary. So BA, is the, is your next project going to have an art component? The next project, I decided I'm doing a trilogy of these non-genre books, or maybe I'm creating my own genre. So the next project, I have the, the first draft done because uh, I wanted to get it done before the tour started because I knew I couldn't write while I was going from one city to another city. Um, But it, too, is about uh, art and about history and has a mystery in it and has a little bit of romance. It's set in Philadelphia and Paris in the 1920s, and it's about the post-Impressionists and the early modern modern artists, and they're all hanging out with Gertrude Stein in Paris. And In this book, my protagonist is having an affair with Henri Matisse, 
So, oh, from Mark Rothko and one to Matisse in the next. Right. So there could be a, one of those Who knows? sketches of Matisse's, your character. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, B.A., thanks so much for talking Thank with me you. today. This is really fun. And, and you have a, many stops on your book oh, tour. Oh, many, ahead. many. And so this week I will be in Ann Arbor, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, Napersville, and Wichita. And going to your, your site, B, B, is yes, it BAShapirobooks.com has all of the details of the appearances. Upcoming appearances. As tab. well as everything else you ever wanted to know about me and my book in like way, way more than you ever wanted to know. And a great blog. So yeah, lots of stuff there. <laughs> lots um, of stuff. So well, thank you so much again. Thanks, T. Come back anytime where you're swinging through town, BA. We'll be happy um, to. Thank, thanks to everyone for listening out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. They used to tell me I was building a dream, and so I followed them all. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line just waiting for bread? I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we look swell. Full of that yam.
around the dog. But you gotta pretend there's a moon. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Talk it all. 
all, that's my advice. We're parting, you go your way, I'll go mine, it's best I with you. Here's a kiss, I hope that this brings lots of luck to you. Makes no difference how I carry on, just don't you talk about me when I'm gone. is Ron Paget, and I'm here to tell you just one thing, that you're listening to a radio station with your ears, and it's called WC. Now, if we stop right there, it would be bad. 
Because that sounds like a bathroom. <laughs> well, we're listening to WCBN, and it has an FM, and then it has an Ann Arbor. WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. There you go. Here underway, so Eagles kick off toward the left side. Chesson will receive at the five-yard line. He's running toward his right now. He's got some blocks. He's got to see if he's going down the right sideline. He only has the kicker to beat. Chesson, the 40s, the 30, the 20, the 10, 5. Touchdown, Michigan. Up the kickoff. They don't need the offense. me on my cell phone. Zorowetsky skates in, looking for room. Fire your shot, he scores! Zach Zorowetsky makes it 4-3! Three goals in the third period for the Wolverines, and the 5-on-3 is taking advantage of it. And now Connor deflects it by his man. Connor across center ice. Kyle Connor up the left side. In on goal, he shoots and he scores! Kyle Connor, a breakaway shorthanded goal. Ties this one up for the Wolverines, 2-2. In the first period, still a minute 26 to go on the Selman. Because ever since I left the city, you. A left foot as sweet as honey from Riley Woods to head it home perfectly past the diving keeper Gerberich. The Wolverines leaving the Niagara Purple Beagles stunned. Late night when you need.